This is a multi-part episode. If you've not listened to the previous parts, please go back and do so. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so you never so you never really felt like you had a spiritual witness of the Book of Mormon or the truthfulness of the church. Is that what started you down the path to leading leading away from the church or was it something else, maybe something doctrinally or historically that led you that way? I think the 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 main question for me has has always been around archaeology and the Book of Mormon. So, I grew up in the Ezra Taft Benson era. You know, the Book of Mormon is the the, the keystone of our religion uh, era. So, uh, if it fails, everything fails. Which is which is a it's a very logical way to think about things, right? If if Joseph Smith did uh, by the by the gift and power of God translate uh, an ancient record uh, as a young unlearned man, then then great. If 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 that's not what the Book of Mormon is, uh, then then it's it, that's not what it is. So the idea that it would be an ancient record to me was indispensable, right? That's what it claims to be, an ancient record found by a young man in a hill in New York and translated by that young man into English. And it's and it's a as supposedly an ancient record of peoples, real peoples who lived in the Americas. So that idea uh was indispensable for me. Before my mission just a few few months before my mission, the Dead Sea Scrolls were on exhibit on loan to BYU. It's a traveling exhibit that I've seen a couple of times now. I've seen it uh, once there at BYU and now once here when it was here in Cincinnati a few years ago. But I went to that exhibit at BYU and I remember standing in front of uh, the the large Isaiah scroll, which I understand is not the actual Isaiah scroll, but it's a replica that they send around with the with the traveling exhibit. But um, it, it's a it's a complete replica of the full Isaiah scroll that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I remember standing there and listening to the uh, cassette tape description of what I was looking at on the Walkman that that they handed me when I went into the exhibit, and just being kind of carried away in thought when the cassette tape, you know, described the Isaiah scroll as, as an actual ancient record that that came out of the dust and then tried to make a comparison of that to the Book of Mormon. Because I was like, well, we don't have the plates. And not only do we not have the plates, but we don't have anything like a predecessor to the plates uh, on parchment or anything that would demonstrate that the plates or the English translation of them would actually represent 
uh, an ancient artifact. And that, that leads into why I was in that headspace at the end of my mission thinking about archaeology, because that, that for me has always been kind of the linchpin. And um, while I was on my mission, I talked about the, the city that I was in in southern Hungary that was a, a, a college town. I was there knocking doors with one of my companions on a hot summer day, and we were out in this, uh, this neighborhood uh, of houses uh, knocking on doors. And Hungary is kind of a weird place because it was, it was behind the Iron Curtain, so uh, people have high iron fences or stone walls around their yards to where you, you kind of have to ring a bell uh, that rings inside the house in order for them to come out and open the, the gate for you to even see in their yard. There, there's a lot of uh, kind of remaining uh, anxiety and, and fear of their neighbors that uh, comes from that communist era. So we rang the bell at this one house, and instead of coming out to the gate, uh, this, this house uh, sat right on the sidewalk. Uh, so the, there were windows on the front of the house that were right on the sidewalk. And instead of coming out of the house and opening up the gate, the man stuck his head out the front window and, and asked us what we wanted. And so we, you know, we explained who we were, that we wanted to tell him about an ancient record that had been found, and, you know, would he have some time to talk about it? And <laughs> he was kind of a, an eccentric guy, and he, he was like, well, would you be interested in reading a real ancient record that was found? And I was like, uh, sure. So he disappeared back into his house uh, and came back to the window and held out to me like a sheaf of papers that looked like it had been photocopied off of something. And he handed it to me and he's like, here, here's a real ancient document that, that has been found. Uh, and he's like, I'll tell you what, I'll take your book and I'll read it if you'll take this book and, and read it. But you have to bring it back because this is my only copy and you've gotten it from a friend of his. So my companion thought I was crazy, but I, I made the deal and, and I took that sheaf of papers back to our apartment that night and I read it and, you know, it was describing a war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And I had no idea what I was reading. Uh, I, I realize now what I didn't know then, there were Hebrew characters on one side of the paper, and then there was an English translation of them. So it was like a translation of uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it, it turns out now that it was, it was a translation of the War Scroll uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I had no idea what it was at the time. You know, I was 20 years old and, and reading nibbly and trying to be more scholarly than I was. But took it back to him the next day. But I remember just kind of being struck by that there were actual scrolls being found again i was struck by there were actual scrolls being found that demonstrated that the culture of ancient judaism actually existed and was a real thing and there's nothing like that nothing tangible like that for the book of mormon okay so long story short it's always been archaeology <laughs> so for you it came down to archaeology and so 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 was that the last was that the final straw that made you realize that you really wanted something tangible to prove or to provide evidence for the Book of Mormon? Is that is that really what sealed the deal for you as to why you no longer believed it to be true? No, it's not. It's not the final, but it's definitely the, it's definitely the thing that sent me searching. Sure. Yeah. So so how did you what led you after 
that experience on your mission, what led you after that to start questioning and searching for answers? Uh, when I came home from my mission, like I said, I tried really hard to put on that mask and I was in full on struggle because I wanted there to be uh, some type of evidence. So I, I came home and I, I subscribed to Farms Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. Uh, it's now the Maxwell Institute. They had a publication, a journal that they produced uh, quarterly uh, called the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. Uh, I subscribed to that and you know read it every quarter when it would come out. And what I found there is that most often uh, the scholarly papers that were written in that journal were mostly walking back overly optimistic claims that had been made about archaeological finds in Mesoamerica uh, 50 years prior. And that bothered me. So I was, I was just looking for something to hold on to. But I still enjoyed the culture of the church. I still enjoyed the fact that wards were generally uh, a, a welcoming place. It gave me a family outside of my family. But uh, I, I think a, probably a big piece of, of my beginning to question was was meeting my wife and 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 her family so um when i came home I, I went back to work at the same company where my dad was working a small electronics firm in, in in salt lake city and was working there with a friend of mine from high school and he would come in after a weekend and uh, there was a mutual friend of ours who was starting to meet girls online you know, the, the internet kind of really came into being uh, during my uh, early high school years as a, as a thing that uh, people actually had access to, you know, with, with dial-up and people had in their homes. Uh, and so it was kind of a weird idea that, that this mutual friend of ours was meeting girls online. So my friend Keith would come in and, and <laughs> tell about their, their weekend escapades where uh, they would go out uh, dancing or whatever they would do, and and this mutual friend of ours would meet some girl there that that he had met online, and he was always frustrated that uh, they, according to him, they didn't turn out to be like what they had presented themselves uh, as online. Um, so we we would sit at work and talk about that and laugh about it, and uh, we we devised a, a a science experiment that we would conduct where we would uh, create. Uh, a profile for ourselves because I asked him. I said, "Where, where is, where is this friend of ours uh, meeting these girls?" And so he told me that he was meeting them on a site called LDSMatchmaker.com. So we decided that we would do a. Uh, we didn't, we didn't really trust his uh, his judgment because my friend Keith said, "You know, these girls seem pretty cool." He's like, "I don't know what his thing is, but maybe he's a little too picky or whatever." But so we devised the science experiment where we would create a profile of ourselves. We had to respond to anybody who uh, might happen upon our profile and, and strike up a conversation with us, um, and we would just, you know, see what kind of bites we got. Uh, there was no intent really to uh, meet anyone. It was just kind of we just kind of devised this experiment to test our our mutual friends' judgment. And uh, so I created the profile, and within a couple of hours, I had probably six or seven emails of, of girls at BYU who were interested in talking and getting to know each other. And one of the emails was from a girl out here in 
around Cincinnati area. And I thought, that's, that's weird. That's a long way away. Right. So responded to her email. Her name was Angela. And we started talking, uh, started chatting uh, online uh, using ICQ, <laughs> some old chat client. And uh, then eventually, you know, it got to the point where we were talking on the phone and, you know, cell phones weren't really a thing then. This was 1999. So um, we ran up big long distance bills. But, you know, eventually it got to the point where it was, it was fairly serious after several months to the point where she uh, invited me out here to be her date to her sister's wedding. So I flew out in November of 99 and attended her sister's wedding as her date uh, at a Baptist church. So I got to see uh, how the other side lives when it comes to weddings. And while I was here, uh, proposed and um, she said yes. Uh, so I went back, I flew back to Utah with the intent of um, moving out here at the end of 99 after Christmas, spend that last Christmas with my family because uh, I didn't think it would be a good idea to have come home from my mission in the middle of that year and then leave my family before spending a Christmas with them. So decided to spend Christmas with them and then move out here to Cincinnati area. So that's what I did. Um, moved out here and went to work initially at uh, Fidelity Investments, uh, doing some seasonal work there, preparing stock portfolios for tax season, um, the documents that, uh, that people would need related to those, related to their accounts, and then um, eventually got a job uh, working for uh, an insurance company that had uh, Medicare contracts. And while I was working there, there was a, a security guard uh, named Charlotte. Uh, she was an elderly uh, African-American woman. And we would talk often. And when I would go down to the mailroom to get the mail, um, we'd talk about religion because I was still in that mindset of, of being a, a, good, a good Mormon. And I, I was really trying to because uh, Angela uh, had gotten baptized the day after I got home from my mission. So I came home on May 14th. She was baptized into the LDS church on May 15th. And we both kind of took that as a sign, right? Uh, I then, you know, with, with uh, the wedding approaching, I was feeling the pressure of, of being uh, a good priesthood holder, a good representative of, of the LDS church, uh, both, you know, within my relationship with Angela and, and also in my work relationships. So I would try to do missionary work with Charlotte and whoever else I could talk to. And um, eventually got to the point in, our, in my conversations with Charlotte where she was taking missionary discussions, uh, she was reading the Book of Mormon, and then one day when I thought things were going fantastically well, I uh, came into work and, and talked to Charlotte and she looked upset and she handed me back the Book of Mormon that I had given her that had posted notes that she had stuck in there as she had read and studied and she said I can't I can't read this anymore uh, I asked her why she said she had talked to her pastor and that he had told her that that Mormons were racist and I tried to argue that point because here I was every day talking with her I certainly wasn't racist didn't have any racist tendencies she agreed with that but she she handed me a, a stack of papers that her pastor had printed off for her that 
you know, went into uh, the church's history with, with blacks in the priesthood. And that sent me searching on that issue, which sent me down the rabbit hole of, of LDS church history and doctrine and changes and policies. And, and you both know where all that goes. Sure do. Um, did you have the same reaction with any of the other policies or was the, the racism the main one? Like, did you swept the other ones under the rug before? Like, yeah, polygamy? <laughs> Uh, yeah, polygamy was a shelf item for me. So, yeah, race and the priesthood, uh, kind of, kind of coming back to, to, to bite me like that was tough. Um, because I remember sitting, I remember on my mission, you know, I, I had that goal that I talked about, right, to read all of the standard works. Well, that of course included the official declarations that are in the Pearl of Great Price, right? So, you know, the official declaration ending polygamy, the, the official declaration ending the, the ban on, on blacks in the priesthood. And so I remember being troubled by both of those. But yeah, you, you, you put them up on the shelf and you 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 don't touch them. You leave them there until they, uh, they kind of fall off of the shelf at, at a time when you don't expect it. So polygamy did, did a similar thing uh, as well. So in, so let's see, Michael, you're not from Utah, but Matthew, you are. So you, you may, you may be able to resonate with this a little bit, but like in Utah, at least when I was growing up there in elders quorum, when I was a, a young man getting ready to go on a mission and a young man having just come home from a mission, I would go to elders quorum. That was like speculation time, right? That was time for every uh, Bob in the ward to start speculating about when we're going back to Missouri, when is polygamy coming back? You know, those types of, things that are kind of outside the mainstream of, of LDS thought, but people kind of hang on to there in Utah. And so I was kind of swimming in that pool of, you know, people suggesting that there was a time when polygamy was coming back and what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to handle that? Right. So Angela and I met uh, on my flight back from, uh, from attending her sister's wedding. Uh, I had a layover in Phoenix and they overbooked the flight that I was supposed to get from Phoenix to Salt Lake City. So they were offering $500 flight vouchers for anyone who would be willing to take a later flight. Well, at that time, a $500 flight voucher would buy a lot. So I agreed to take a later flight through Denver uh, to get back to Salt Lake. And I took the $500 flight voucher and I sent it out here to Angela. Um, now, Something I haven't mentioned up until now, but I will now, is that when Angela and I met, she had two little girls already. You know, one of the things that uh, that people were concerned about around me and, and and me beginning to date her was that I would have a ready-made family, uh, and they wondered whether I was old enough and and wise enough to to manage that, uh, which I can totally understand their concern. Um, but that $500 flight voucher was was going to allow her to travel out there uh, with Kelsey and Holly in order to meet my family. So took the flight voucher, she flew out there. And while she was out there, uh, we took a drive and we went out into the uh, southwestern corner of the Salt Lake Valley, which at the time was just farmland. You get out by Harriman, it was nothing but farmland. Now it's all Dr. Seuss cat in the hat houses out there in, uh, in day spring. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that. Matthew or not, but um, it's it's just filled up with houses now. But um, 
anyway, we took a drive because it was what that was one of my favorite things to do when I was in high school was to, to take a drive out there by the, the copper mines. It was dark out at that end of the valley. Uh, you got away from the, from the light pollution of the city and you could actually see the stars. And so I, I used to love to drive out there. And so I took her out there to, to kind of share that with her. And, um, you know, we're driving along and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, thinking about one of those conversations in elders quorum about like, you know, what are you going to do if polygamy comes back? And here I am, you know, engaged to be married to, to this woman. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, you know, like, what would I do if polygamy came back? And so, so I strike up this conversation with her about, you know, some people speculate that someday polygamy is going to come back in the church. What would you think about that? <laughs> uh, let's just say I'm surprised that she actually married me after that conversation. But yeah, not a, not a bright thing to do. It didn't uh, didn't lead anywhere good. But uh, yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that that Mormonism does to you. <laughs> Well, she's still married to you, so she must love you a lot. She she did, yeah, and it's it'll be twenty years next year, so that's amazing. I, I guess that conversation didn't hurt me too much. <laughs> so we talked a lot about archaeology, uh, polygamy is one issue. Were there were those the main issues? Were there was there anything else that was kind of detrimental to your faith, or something that made you question, or or do you do you have anything else that you would like to say about that? No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, you know, I. I I just got to the point uh, after after years of study. So I, I talked about the experience with Charlotte and, and and how that sent me on on a you know down the rabbit hole of, of searching you know Google searching uh, various uh, issues with the LDS Church and that led me to uh, into discussion boards online. Started out at uh, beliefnet.com in a, in a discussion board there on Mormonism. And then, you know, several of us that, that discussed regularly there uh, and, and elsewhere uh, eventually kind of founded our own private message board where we discussed things. Uh, we even got together in person once in, in Salt Lake City to discuss things. And, uh, you know, that group uh, of men and women really kind of, I mean, it was indispensable to have them uh, help, you know, help think through things, help discuss through things. Uh, that I was learning, um, I think probably one of the one of the straws that was almost too much on the camel's back was was reading Rough Stone Rolling, and just kind of realizing that uh, there were uh, logical, rational explanations for what Joseph Smith produced, uh, both in terms of his writings and in terms of the success of, of the LDS church, uh, that, uh, don't result in, in the conclusion that God did it. And so I reached a point probably in around, around 2007 or so where I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't a literal believer anymore in the LDS church and its truth claims, but, uh, wanted to stick in for the, uh, for the cultural aspect of it. Didn't want to lose my family. Wanted to be that strong priesthood holder that that held his family together. And so I I, I kept pushing and kept kept trying. And and Michael, you you alluded to you know my time teaching in elders quorum. Um, I would I would teach lessons and be very open. Uh, so I, to back up a little bit, I spent a number of years in the young men's organization. 
where I didn't feel as safe to be open about my doubts. Uh, I, I felt like there I really had to toe the party line because there was a responsibility on my shoulders to raise up the next generation of, of Latter-day Saint youth in a faithful way. And so I just kind of swallowed my doubts while I served there. But when I when I moved when I was moved from the young men's organization to the elders quorum, I well for one thing the two men that I was in the elders quorum presidency with uh, were uh, they they were willing to be open too, and so we had discussions that uh, were somewhat refreshing. But then I would teach lessons that in which I was very open about my doubts about the Book of Mormon, about whether or not Joseph Smith was actually a prophet. And it sparked conversation in the elders quorum. Um, and, you know, people would would uh, come and tell me, other men would come and tell me that uh, they appreciated my candor, um, that it was, it was refreshing. I never got into trouble with the bishop or anyone else over it. But... Um, you know, it was it was a difficult time because I was I was still trying to be still trying to be faithful, trying to find goodness in my church activity, trying to find community, uh, like minded people who would be for me in person. What I had experienced uh, online with people and eventually got to the point where it, it just wouldn't work anymore. And. For, for a number of years there, I just kept pushing, just kept trying, just kept trying. And, you know, Angela and I were very open throughout all of that about what we were going through, what I was learning, what she was learning. You know, uh, there was a time when I read uh, the book In Sacred Loneliness, which is, uh, I don't know if either of you have read it, but it's um, uh, it's a, a history of Joseph Smith's wives and uh, in their own words describes you know, what living polygamy was like for them. And that was a that was a rough book to read. And I remember hiding it from Angela uh, because I didn't want it to harm her faith. And she found it one day while I was at work. And, you know, that sparked a conversation and um, told her, you know, that I uh, wasn't sure that I believed in God anymore, wasn't sure that I believed in the church anymore. Uh, that crushed her. I remember her crying and she, she said, so wait, you don't, you don't believe that we have the truth. And so we were, you know, throughout the years we were, we were open when we talked about things and she was supportive. Um, and it got to the point where, uh, you know, she tried, she pushed, uh, there was a time probably around 2008 or so when, uh, our Bishop had challenged the ward to read the book of Mormon through and she had never done it. Um, we had tried to read it together, but, uh, it, it never really interested her. Um, so she, at that time, when the, when the bishop challenged the ward, she, you know, she decided that, that she was going to take up that challenge. And she got uh, the Book of Mormon on, on CD, and she would sit and listen to the CDs and, and, and read along. And uh, she went through the entire book in a couple of weeks. And I remember feeling a little bit uh, excited because I had kind of hoped that, you know, hey, I've never received the witness, but if if she receives the witness, then maybe there's still hope for me. And we had a conversation after she had read it. And I asked her, you know, what uh, what do you think now having read it all the way through? 
And <laughs> her response was, uh, was very disheartening for, for where I was at the time. She said, um, that, you know, she struggled to believe it before she had read it all the way through. And now that she had read it all the way through, she was certain that it's not what it claims to be. And so from that time on, she, she kind of fell off attending church for the most part. I would, I would kind of try to push her to go. I would take the kids and go. And a lot of times she wouldn't, but sometimes I would nudge her until she would go with us. And we would come home from church on Sunday afternoon and sit down to lunch. And I could just see in her eyes that I, I, I described it at the time and still do as a, as a dead look in her eyes. She was not being fed at church. And I thought, you know, that if we just kept if we just kept trying, uh, it would eventually work out, and and it didn't. So one day she, one Friday, uh, she, I came home from work and she said, you know, we really we really need to talk. Um, and she said, let's go let's go grab some dinner, uh, take it take it to a park, and we'll just talk. So that's what we did. We went and grabbed dinner went to a park and sat down and, and I was wholly prepared for her to tell me that she wanted a divorce because I was, you know, I knew that church wasn't working for her and um, I had been pretty clear with her that although I had my doubts and my uh, uh, questions about the LDS church that I didn't think I could ever be anything but Mormon. Um, her family was Southern Baptist, so... Um, you know, she felt like she had some place to go back to. And I, I, like I said, I didn't feel like I could be anything other than Mormon. And I, I told her that on, the, on a number of occasions. So, um, I thought we had reached the point where, you know, irreconcilable difference over religion. Uh, and I was certain that that's what she was going to tell me that night at the park. Um, that's not what she told me. What she did tell me was that she could not go back to the LDS church anymore. She didn't care if I did but that she couldn't and that uh, she would like to take the kids and, and try to find somewhere else to go to church. And, you know, I was welcome to go with her if she wanted, if I wanted to. Um, but if I wanted to stay going to the LDS church, that I could do that too. And um, it was like, uh, it was like a weight lifted off of me. I felt free to say, yeah, let's go. Let's go try something else. And so that's what we did. The next week we started church hopping around the area uh, until we landed uh, at Lakeside Christian Church. So, Paul, uh, you only you only went to one church, mainly? or i just wondering, because I know that in my experience, at least at first, I, uh, you know, you, you brought up Mormon, right? You just expect the church to be perfect. Did you find yourself, like, criticizing churches, at first, like for little little flaws or things that you thought were imperfections. No, um, so I guess for me it was we had been we had been going to services at my in-laws' uh, Baptist church for so many years. Whether it was you know that was an Easter cantata or or a Christmas cantata or an Easter morning service. Um, you know, we we had attended services there uh, so often that it I had kind of gotten away from the idea of I guess of criticizing. By that point, I was really open. I, I wasn't always that way. So I remember 
going to one a service at my my in-laws Baptist church when uh, our oldest daughter Kelsey was probably uh, seven or eight years old, and it was I, I don't remember what kind of service it was. It wasn't a, um, anyway. I don't I don't recall what kind of a service it was, but it was in the evening. But we had gone and uh, the you know the the pastor preached and and then did an altar call and Kelsey got up out of the pew and went forward for the altar call and it, she must have been eight because I think she was just baptized because I remember that that's why I was freaking out so she went forward for the altar call and I'm nudging Angela like what is she doing what what is she doing we're we're LDS like she can't be doing this you know <laughs> and I remember. Um, taking our son out in the hall. Um, he was a toddler and, and um, you know, Angela had gone with her. Angela had grown up Baptist. So, you know, for her, it was not anything to see someone go forward for an altar call. And, you know, for her, that was a, a, a legitimate ex, uh, expression of, of, of one's need for, uh, for a savior. And so, you know, she went up there to be with, to be with Kelsey, our son was starting to fuss a little bit. So I took him out in the hallway and I remember just pacing the hallway, kind of freaking out, like thinking, you know, we're Mormon, we're, we're LDS. Like, how can she go forward for an altar call? Like, this doesn't even make any kind of sense. And, you know, in my, in my Mormon brain at the time, I'm thinking, you know, this is, she's, she's being influenced by, by Satan because that's what other churches are. Right. (laughs) So, um, but by the time we left, I I was so far beyond that mindset that I was just open and ready to see what else was out there. Um, so in terms of whether we tried just one church, we so Lakeside Christian Church is directly across the street from the stake center where we attended Mormon services for a decade. And so we tried to avoid that church. We tried a Methodist, United Methodist Church that's, that's nearby where our church some of our children went through preschool. Um, we liked it. They had both a, a traditional hymn service and a contemporary service. We, we went to the traditional hymn service the first week because we thought that that would be more like what we were used to. Um, the youth pastor for that church lived, um, her, her backyard fence backed up against our backyard fence, so we, we knew her fairly well. Um, we thought we might go back to that church the next week for for the contemporary service, but I was I kind of freaked out a little bit and, and started researching like the community of Christ and and tried to take us in that direction uh, because I thought well you know if we're not Mormon if we're not Salt Lake Mormon maybe we'll be Mormon in some way right <laughs> so we we had kind of I started uh, corresponding with the a female pastor from a community of Christ congregation that's near here, but kind of farther away than you would want to travel for church. And we, we kind of made preliminary plans the next week to go there. Uh, but then ended up deciding not to do that because it was like an hour, an hour away. And we didn't want to travel that far every week for church. So we decided not even to investigate that, but like we made that decision on Sunday morning. So then we were like, yeah, we'll just stay home this week. And then the third week, is is when we decided to just okay whatever we're going to try lakeside and the, the reason we tried lakeside is because i could see i could see when i was sitting in the in the foyer with our kids 
in the Mormon church. I could see people going into Lakeside and they always looked so happy. I was not happy in the LDS church at that point. And the people going in the Lakeside always looked happy. They looked like they were excited to go to church. And that's not what I saw at the Mormon church. I saw people struggling to get a bunch of kids in the church. Uh, I, I saw, you know, myself in the mirror realizing that, you know, thinking about how long can I go on trying to put on this mask. And so I just wasn't happy. And, and so I, I wanted to try Lakeside, but we had kind of agreed that we weren't going to because it was directly across the street and we didn't want our Mormon friends to see us going into, into Lakeside. And it's a very casual uh, environment at Lakeside. So people wear, you know, short shorts and a polo football weeks people might wear their their team's jersey so it's it's kind of the complete opposite in terms of uh style and culture than the LDS churches say and uh so you know there, there were a lot of reasons why we avoided it but um you know that first week we walked in there and and worshiped for the first time it was like wow um this is this makes sense it, it just felt like home from from the beginning and People welcomed us, and you know we've made really great relationships there. So yeah, I was just gonna ask if there was like, what was the point where, or was there a point that you reached where you really just kind of thought like, I'm in a good place, and and I would never return to Mormonism, and and did that take a while? It it did take a while because I had known in my in my so I talked I alluded to an online discussion group that that we kind of took and made private. Uh, and there, I had known people in that group uh, who had gone and become evangelical Christians and then, you know, find out that after four years or eight years, they're, they're going back to the LDS church. So I did for a while think, you know, is this just another mask I'm putting on, you know, uh, or or will this stick? And, um, you know, so I. I didn't, uh, I spent a year, actually more than a year, maybe a year and three months, really kind of digging in and trying to learn and, uh, and uh, get my bearings before I was at a point where um, I was like, okay, I, I'm ready to make it official and join this church um, by, you know, by being baptized and, and becoming a full member of this church. So... We left in May of 2010, uh, and Curtis and I were baptized. My son and I were baptized in August of 2011. So, um, and I'd say that's probably the point where, uh, where yeah, I was I was ready to say I'm ready. And and, and up until that point, I, I did I did do doctrinal compare, but as far as like the church goes, I was I wasn't critical of the church uh, per se. I was curious to know how it's different, right? How it's structured. Uh, is there anything like priesthood? You know, I was curious about all those kind of things, uh, but I wasn't, I wasn't critical. Like you, you asked me earlier if I was critical. I, I wasn't critical, just, uh, just very curious. So, yeah. So my, my question that I was going to ask is, so throughout this process of, of leaving the LDS church, finding the church you're at now and feeling like you're home, if someone were to ask you at what point, do you feel like the Lord saved you? Could you give a specific moment in time? Was it back in your mission when you were praying for Jesus to save you? Or or is it a little bit difficult to nail down a specific time? 
I think it's hard to nail down a specific time. Um, I, I do believe that I was saved before I left the LDS church because as, as I became sort of a, I guess what you might call a progressive Mormon in, in regards to my beliefs about the LDS church and, and its truth claims, um, the non-negotiable was Jesus. And so although I did teach those lessons in Elders Quorum where I openly shared my doubts about the LDS Church and its truth claims, most of my lessons were focused on Jesus and what he did for us, what his sacrifice was for us. That's that's really where uh, my heart was at the time. And so and I guess I guess that's why church at the end of in the end of the time in the LDS church became so difficult is because I I'd kind of grown weary of, of studying out LDS church history and doctrine and issues. And, and I really just wanted to focus on Christ and, and his love and, and I, I wasn't getting it there. And so it became kind of, kind of difficult. Um, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed kind of teaching lessons to elders quorum where I really tried to focus in on, on Jesus so I, I do believe that it, it was before uh, I left. And uh, I, Michael, I've told you this story, um, I think, in one of our conversations. And I'll, I'll share it now with you, Matthew, as well. But there, there was a time when uh, I, I was still struggling. And this would have been, I'm trying to think when this was, where we were living at the time to get a gauge on, on what year it was. It was probably, it would have been the spring or summer of 2004. We'd just gone through... Uh, a miscarriage uh, as a couple my wife had miscarried and that was incredibly difficult for her um, and painful and uh, awful for me as well and you know we were grieving from that we were trying as a couple to uh, navigate through that pain and, and still remain connected as a couple and uh, you know I remember in your Mormon head you go to a really kind of unhealthy space when when things like that happen sometimes where you think you must have done something wrong or you must not have been as faithful as you should have been or that wouldn't have happened to you. And so that's kind of the headspace I was in at the time. And um, <clears throat> I was uh, just, you know, just praying at the time to, to know whether uh, I was accepted of God and um, I even wrote a, you know, wrote a uh, couple of short stories during that time that uh, kind of touch on the headspace that I was in uh, through, you know, various uh, things that the characters do and say. And I was writing one where, uh, you know, a character realizes that he's never really heard from God and um, that was representative of what I was going through at the time where I was realizing I, I had never really heard from God, even though I'd prayed for a witness of the Book of Mormon, a witness of Joseph Smith as a prophet, all of that for years at that point, I was realizing I'd never really heard from God. And I remember thinking that uh, it was odd that I had never dreamed about Jesus because Jesus had been really important, a really important part of my life for a very, very long time at that point. And I had never dreamed about Jesus. 
And I thought that was weird because, you know, I dreamed about all kinds of stuff. I've seen things, you know, uh, just obscure, odd things, mundane things, you know, but never about Jesus. And I remember mentioning that to Angela, you know, that, that I thought that that was strange in one of our late night conversations and just kept just kept praying to know if I was if I was accepted of God. And one day I uh, went into the bedroom to lay down, take an afternoon nap and um, closed the door behind me because Angela was out in the front room with the, the kids and they were making a little noise. So closed the door behind me, laid down to take a nap. And as I was laying there, I heard a voice whisper my name. It sounded like it was right next to my ear, you know, and I, I had my eyes closed and I thought, you know, I must have missed Angela coming in, you know, and thought I must have dozed off and maybe she came in to try to wake me up, you know. Um, so I opened my eyes and there was nobody there and the door was closed. And I thought, you know, that that's weird, you know, to hear a voice say your name. Mm-hmm. So um, I closed my eyes and, and uh, went back to, tried to go back to sleep and heard the voice again and thought, you know, uh, that's really weird. And that time I got up out of bed and walked over to the door and opened up the door and just kind of listened out through the hallway to see what Angela was doing. And I could hear that they were out in the front room uh, watching TV and just kind of playing around and um, thought, man, that's weird. So I closed the door and uh, laid back down and I thought, man, that's, that was a weird experience. I'd never experienced anything like that before. Um, and then I don't know how much longer, how much after that it was a week or, or two weeks, I, I don't know. Um, but one night I, I had a, a, a dream that I was walking up a hill. And so when I was on my mission, there was a, a hill in, in Buddha where uh, I'm assuming a church had done it, had set up kind of like statues of each of the 12 apostles. And it, it was like a a round hill and there was a walkway around the outside of it up to the top and along that walkway there were statues of each of the 12 uh, original apostles of Jesus and then at the top there were three crosses and you know my, my companion and I had kind of stumbled onto that one day while we were out uh, you know tracting and, and knocking on doors and um, I remember that that was a it was kind of a cool experience to see that out in the middle of uh, this field and so um Anyway, I had this dream uh, where I did dream that I was walking up this a similar hill and got to the top and looked up uh, and there there was Jesus hanging on the cross and that that same voice that I had heard when I was trying to take the nap said my name again and said you're mine and you know I've, I've thought about that a lot I don't know what to make of it but that's kind of that's that's why I say I, I think that that I was saved before I left the LDS church is because of that experience. Man, I'm trying to I'm trying to absorb everything. It's a lot of great stuff. Maybe yeah. maybe we can. Is there any final thoughts you'd like to say or? Yeah, I think um, you know we've talked in, in another episode and 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 quite a bit in depth here about uh, fears that are involved in in leaving the LDS church and. Uh, making a transition into broader Christianity. One of the things that really kind of opened up to me uh, when we left, as I, you know, and really when we left, I, I, I made mention of the fact that I'd kind of grown weary of 
studying out LDS church history issues and doctrinal issues and policy issues. And um, when we left, it's like the world opened up to me. I suddenly had desire to study again. I was, I've always been someone who, who studies things out and wants to learn as much about things as I can. And um, when we left, it's like the world opened up to me. And, and, and with the LDS Church's teachings on the great apostasy and how broader Christianity is apostate, um, there's a lot of fear about studying too much about other churches or the history of Christianity. And, and really, the, there was a sense in which I felt like it was not mine, right? Because the LDS Church has its genesis in 1830 and it's like everything before that is broken so why would you even look at it and i remember making a comment to uh someone online because they were they were surprised at how quickly i made the transition from you know studying mormonism so deeply and this was this person that i was making this comment to was someone who had been in that private discussion group with me uh so it's someone i had met in person and, and had become a real friend and and he made the comment to me like you're making this transition like really fast and and you're 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 jumping like head first into studying out Christianity and I was like yeah but you know it's like all of that history all of that doctrine is mine now it wasn't before it was broken I didn't touch it but it's all mine now like I get to I get to look at it and I get to reason through it and think about it and and so I think what I would say is you know the that the world is out there and there's some really amazing, beautiful stuff in historic Christianity, whether it's, uh, you know, the writings of Augustine in his confessions, or it's um, the writings of St. John of the Cross, or it's the experiences of Martin Luther or John Calvin or whoever else. Um, there's a lot out there that's just uh, waiting to be, to be discovered. All right. Well, thank you very much for your for your witness, for your testimony of Christ, and you've already you've already explained how you, your belief in Christ and um, and how he's how God has called you to him. So, really, thank you for your witness and, and for sharing that with us today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. You're invited to visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send a message there with comments or suggestions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness Podcast group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, suggestions for future episodes, etc. We would love to hear from you and hope to speak with you soon. Stay bright, fireflies. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play, CastBox, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or review wherever you listen. Thank you, Fireflies. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well.
Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road at www.adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus' name.